Hello and welcome to That Science, the podcast exploring the meaning of science today. This is What Science and I'm Amelia Doran, your host. This episode, we're talking about animal testing and pre-clinical trials. The ethics of animal testing are highly contentious, but alongside my guests Meg Campbell and Amy Wu, we've attempted to discuss the main reasons animals are used within science experiments, the regulations in place here in the UK to safeguard animals, and the potential alternatives to the practice. This is by no means an exhaustive list of pros and cons, nor a detailed literature review of the potential alternatives, but hopefully gives an overview of this highly emotive issue. Please be aware, this episode does mention instances of animal cruelty, death and disease. Here are my, Meg and Amy's thoughts on the issue. Hi, thank you so much for joining us. So do you want to start off just by introducing yourselves and what you did before you came onto the SciComm course? Yeah. Hi guys, I'm Amy. So before I get into the science communication course, I did a bit of translation in medical documents. So I'd say I know a little bit more than average person about clinical research, but mine was just mostly about human clinical research. And I'm not really an expert anyway, but that sparked an interest in how to make medical research great again. I'm Meg. My undergrad was in just straight biology, but I was really interested in medicine and animals. So appropriate guest for the day, I would hope. Mildly suitable, maybe not quite as much experience as Amy, but I'll do my best. And obviously now on the same masters as Amelia and Amy here doing science and health communication. So yeah, we're going to talk about animal testing today. Obviously a big ethical issue and I think the thing that I want to start with that's maybe a weird place to start, can we talk a bit about whether we can say science is good? Well, I feel like if we all sat here and had just been like, you know, even though I chose to study science and health communication, no, I don't think it's good, that would be a surprise. So obviously To an extent, we all think it's good. It's good enough for us to have chosen it as a career path. But there are so many ethical concerns that just come with every aspect of it. Every experiment, there's got to be God knows how many ethical concerns and forms filled out to determine whether or not we think the science that we're doing is good. But science, I guess, at the root is like the pursuit of progress. And progress has to be considered good, right? Does it? I agree. Like, that's like the idea of what science should be and what science should serve. Um, ultimately, a lot of people working with science or even faintly related to science, like my team in the medical translation department, we always say even though all the impossible deadlines and long working hours of translating documents, it's all for the greater good in the end. That sounds really novel, but is it really the greater good? Because I was translating some patient-facing documents and some patients are confused about what they were instructed to do and they say they didn't get what they quote-unquote expected. So it's a bit heartbreaking. So apparently it's for the greater good, but as Max said, I think in order for science to continue to be good, it needs to be constantly evolving and improving its method to make sure it's really reaching its goal without um, that many harms that is being introduced during the process. You're looking at me as if I have an answer. The, the reason I do the podcast is because I don't have don't an answer. Know. So who knows? But I think, yeah, that progress is definitely what it is. I think, yeah, we all work in science. We all want to think that science is in some ways good. And so I think it's important to to look at why and how we can continue to make it good. So the other question that I was going to ask you about this was, if science goes wrong, is that the fault of the subject or is it the fault of the people doing the subject? Science is conducted by scientists. Science in itself is not inherently good or bad. 
it's 100% what humans choose to do with it, what scientists choose to do with the concept of science that is going to determine whether their science is good or bad. I'd say in most of the cases, in most of like the ethical um, crisis that happened in experiments, it's usually bad experiment designed or some protocols being miscarried out by staff. So I would say it's most likely, if I have to blame something, I would say the experimenters are not doing their best job to prevent harm because they are the one who designs the process and they are the one who know more about what they are doing. You guys handled that question really well. I'm impressed. So we're going to go more on to animal testing in the specifics. And so we've discussed this a little bit, but I think it's important to talk about on the podcast. So I know someone that used to work within sort of animal testing and preclinical trials, so to do with medicine. And I asked them if they would come and speak to us on the podcast. And their response was that they didn't feel comfortable doing that because it was such a big risk to them to be identified within the profession when they were working that now they don't want to. And he was saying that he used to have a mirror to look under his car for bombs and that was a genuine possibility he knew people who had been bombed. I don't think I ever realised how sort of risky it was just to be part of something that we discuss in ethical debates all the time but we never really think about that very human risk factor. Yeah, as much as I feel like there's obviously a lot of animal rights activists that advocate for very peaceful protesting, like PETA. Like, I'm pretty sure bombing is not on their list of actions to resolve animal testing, but you do hear about these groups that do take it to quite extremes to prove their point that they are against what these researchers are doing. I think I have to add on the point is like unbiased attack of all animal technicians is not really helpful. I don't think like an eye for an eye is the best way to solve all problems. Yeah, personally, I don't feel like violence should ever really be considered the answer to a problem like that. I know there's a certain issue about how do you get your point across, but by putting people's lives at risk, you are being equally as bad as those that are testing on animals. That does not make you the ethical judge to be, yeah, like, endangering people's lives. And I think we should recognise that this was 30, 40 years ago. So I think times have changed a lot. But yeah, if if you're saying that you don't want animals' lives to be endangered and you're trying to get that point across by endangering human lives, I don't really see what your rationale is. A bit hypocritical. Yeah. Yeah, so we should maybe go over a little bit about what regulations are in place for animal testing in the UK. So the first thing to recognise is that anyone, any time when animals are being tested on, three licences are in play. So you have to have the individual technicians have to have a licence and that licence will go down to what specifically they're doing. So for example, if you're doing a metabolism study where you need to know how a drug is broken down in the body and therefore you need your animals, your rats, not to eat for 24 hours, you have to have a special licence to say you can handle animals that are having a restricted diet. So that's the first one. Then you'll have the institutional licence, which says that the institution does positive welfare checks and stuff on your animals, that they can take responsible care of the animals that are being tested on. And then each individual study has to be licensed as well by the UK government. And they do the cost-benefit analysis in terms of the cost to the animal and the benefit to society. So it's not even just monetary cost value. It's their quality of life, the effects that that experiment is going to have on the animals. 
I feel like, yes, there is a lot of steps and a lot of regulations around it. But the unfortunate fact is there's a lot of instances of proving that some of these labs don't adhere to these regulations and these standards that are expected from them. Like there's actually an animal advocacy group called ALF and what they do is it's semi-peaceful protesting, but they like break into research facilities to let out these animals and actually from these instances of them advocating they've uncovered a lot of unacceptable environments that these animals are being kept in so as much as it's brilliant that there's all these levels set up to try and minimize the mistreatment of these animals there's nothing to say that these standards have been met um yeah i think that's a problem like there's always the gap between um how nice the regulations look at and what actually is in practice because ideally like everyone should be trained for how to um properly handle the animals but um unfortunately i mean in the history at least um there has been quite a number of very unfortunate cases we are not even talking about the experiment just talking about the animal care part of the lab animals before they went into testing like forgetting to remove an animal from the cage and they got drowned or died when the cage are being washed and like this is quite difficult to happen if you like really take care of all animals in that facility but it happened it's in a few times you guys can like look up the petal website I, I don't recommend it for people who are easily disturbed and minus but that's the fact um the history one reason why people for animal rights don't want animal testing to happen sometimes they are not up to standard and we can reduce that by reducing the number of animals we use for testings definitely do you remember what animal that was? That has been a dog, has been a monkey and mice. So they somehow managed to not notice a, a dog, dog in its cage yes. when it's, they went to watch it out. It's bizarre. That makes so much sense. An animal life is a life. When you're handling a life, you can't cut it down to just human error to be so careless with their treatment. Yeah, that's why I think that's one of the reasons why we should abolish that. Because, I mean, human error is not saying, like, this is fine because it's human error like change the system or change the whole game and we can not have to always be so alert about the very tiny but possible possibility for this disasters to happen. Yeah, I think the headline of the episode is I don't think any of us wish that that was a part of science. Mm. If there was a way for us to have the scientific progress that we need without it, I don't think there's anyone that would say, no, let's still murder some kittens just because. For funsies. Yeah. The, the problem is, I think, we get so stuck in... We've done animal testing for, like, hundreds of years, probably. Yeah. We can get so stuck in, if this way of doing something works, let's just stick to it. But if there are other possibilities, which there are starting to be, as Amy said, then it is so stubborn and closed-minded to say, we've got a way of doing something that is putting other beings at risk. Yes. Let's just stick to it. Yeah. I think it's really interesting I mean so we'll go on to talk a little bit about the alternatives but the reasons that we use them now I think are really interesting so again I was talking to this person that used to be involved in preclinical trials which are all drugs all medicines before they do their human testing which is a required part for them to be licensed 
they have to undergo certain testing in animals to ensure that when they do their first in man trial things will be okay and we were discussing that not only is it about trying to work out the dose to start at which might not be the effective dose but at least doesn't kill the first person that goes into but you have that and you have as much information as you can get from animals because it reduces the testing both time and cost and so when you're looking at drugs you know life-saving drugs using animals to get as far ahead as you can means that that medicine can be used earlier and that was what they were kind of saying as their the way that they saw it the way that they envisioned it as something that was important yeah it's my understanding that one rodent test has to be done followed by a non-rodent animal test phase before it can hit clinical trials. But we've got to bear in mind, even if it's a mammal other than a human, like a dog, that's still not a human. So to say, oh, we've tested it in a rat, so now we're ready to move on to humans, there can be so many physiological differences that almost make you question if it is necessary to test it in a rat, if... There's one of the other methods that I think we read about was microdosing in humans. And personally, I think that sounds like a lot more reasonable place to start than testing a drug meant for humans in a rat. For the listeners, um, microdosing is just starting at the bare minimum levels of these drugs that are being trialled. And then just increasing the dose slowly to see at some point if negative side effects are going to show up. They'll show up before it hopefully hits a lethal level. But this is obviously not in place yet at the moment. It is a legal requirement to do animal testing before it can be used on any first human test subject. Even if it is a microdose. I think one of the reasons why microdosing, as much as it sounds quite a good alternative, and also given the benefit of being genetically relevant, I mean, humans are relevant to humans, is because most regulations in most countries require that you must not give a substance to another human being if you're not sure that they are saved and it doesn't kill or cause disabilities. So that's why, like, animal, I wouldn't say animal testing, but like pre-clinical test is so important um, in terms of it's a form of risk assessment. And it can't really be like replaced it yet. One of the arguments for animal testing is because it's difficult for the techniques at the moment to replace that part of seeing how a substance interacts with the entire system of an organism as a whole. So it is called physiology. Physiology is testing of the interactions of this substance as in a whole organism, the whole body. So that's why they say it is hard to replace whole animal testing um, for just that purpose. So I think an interesting case where I've definitely seen it on anti-animal testing websites of a drug that went badly wrong. It's quite a famous example is thalidomide. It was a drug that was used for anti-nausea purposes and so it was prescribed to a lot of pregnant women for morning sickness um, in the 1950s and it caused fetal malformations and I think only half of the fetuses which were affected by the malformations survived and it's used as an example of, hey, look, we did animal testing and it didn't work. And there are examples where drugs had been tested in animals, found to be safe, and then when they came into humans, they were unsafe. 
But I think the big story behind thalidomide is actually the animal testing that was done and the human testing, so the preclinical and the clinical trials before the drug went to market, were not done very safely, not done to proper standards, but also there was absolutely no requirement for it to be tested on pregnant women and look at the effects on fetuses. So regardless of whether animal testing was used or not in that instance, we would still have had the same issue because they didn't test it on pregnant women at all and it's why now you'll often see when you look at clinical trial studies that they'll do the clinical trial often it will get licensed as a drug and then they do the pregnant women so when it's first licensed it won't be licensed to give to pregnant women yeah i've read about this this happened in 1957 right um that's a quite a while known i wouldn't say it's an argument like precisely for or against animal testing because it's rather unfortunate that the makers wasn't able to realize that it causes fetal malformation after it was brought out to humans and and that testing seems to come after human consumers have find out um wait a minute is that causing some problem with our babies so my other kind of cool sciencey thing about thalidomide is that the drug, the agent that they intended to give people, was safe and does work. However, the molecule is something called a chiral molecule, which in chemistry it basically just means that there's a bond which can be reflected in two ways, and depending on that way, it has different properties. The same way your left hand and your right hand are the same shape, but you can't make them be the same way because your thumb's on the other side. So that would be an example. That's the classic example when you're trying to understand chirality. So your left and right hand. But basically, one form of the thalidomide was safe and then the other form was toxic and the issue was that both were being delivered and actually they've subsequently found that even if you only deliver the effective type your body processes it and you'll get both forms again in the body so it's not something that can be solved but again that isn't something that they would have understood from animal testing. I also just think It's nice to know on the thalidomide subject, I learned last year in a cancer module that thalidomide is used as a drug to treat certain types of cancers. You obviously have to have a pregnancy test beforehand, but I thought actually in some ways it's quite nice that they found a way to use that awful, awful part of medical history to save some lives. So the other thing I was going to say about animals being used as experiments where you can study the whole body that's maybe goes with the fact that actually animals are not humans animals will never be humans Mm. so there's a concept in medicine called prodrugs where you're administered a substance and then your body's processing of that so you digesting that tablet creates the active agent so when you take the medicine it doesn't work in the way it's supposed to until you've digested it but the thing is that if that's dependent on an enzyme in our stomach acid and the same enzyme is not present in mice You can't do it by just getting them to ingest it. You then have to administer the digested, the processed drug in order to test it. So you have to fake a human metabolism in an animal that does not metabolise drugs. So normally you do that outside. So you would metabolise it, get to the product that would be effective, Mm -hmm. and then you'd administer that product to the animal. But still, there's a lot of processing that has to happen in order to actually test it. Exactly, and like the whole point of doing these trials before getting to humans is to be like, 
right, this is exactly what we're gonna do to a human. We've got to test that this is all gonna work the same. If you completely change the method, you might as well not bother. Yeah, in a way, I argue it's not good science. Um, I mean, definitely, it's not a good science. Also, there are a million kinds of humans. Each of that individual need and allergies. So it's not a best, a perfect method for preclinical testing, I'd say. So another important concept in your analysts that you're using for animal testing is the idea of specific pathogen-free animals. So take, for example, all the mice that are used in animal labs. So they're all from the same species. And then the ones that you get for your experiment, you'll pick the specific genetic line that they come from. And so all of that serves just to remove any kind of genetic inconsistencies, which might affect your results. And similarly, they're called specific pathogen free. So they don't have any sort of viruses or anything that could cause confounding results. So hide the results of your experiment. So all of those serve as your control factors in your animal experiment, similar to like your control factors from GCSE science, you know. This is the best you can do to control it, which is useful in terms of actually studying the drug and not studying its, you know, confounding effects. But at the same time, you, you are never going to have a specific pathogen-free human. That's never going to happen. I think it's interesting that that's the practice. Scientifically, I can see what the benefit of that is. But also, again, it's just one extra additional layer of it being an artificial test and how much can you transfer. One of my favourite cartoon artists is Twisted Doodles. She draws a lot of cartoons for new scientists, but there was one that I shared a couple of weeks ago that was about grapefruit and how it always affects the metabolism of drugs because that is something that you wouldn't know if you were feeding mice on their normal diet. You would have no idea that grapefruit just messes with so much metabolism and it's something really specific to humans and they would have had to work that out just from humans being like my drug doesn't work and I eat grapefruit for breakfast every day and that was how they worked it out you know a mice is never going to tell you that (laughs) a mice is never going to tell you much (laughs) (laughs) true I mean unless it's the mice with Cinderella Of course, obviously. So I have another example that I think is really interesting to discuss in terms of animal testing and maybe where alternatives aren't super helpful. Now this is not preclinical trials, it's not related to a drug, but it is related to a disease. There's a parasite, I love a good parasite. So there's a parasite called Trypanosoma cruzi, which causes Chagas disease, which is particularly important in South America. And as a disease, it is horrific, it's horrible. So basically you get the parasite, you get ill, and then it goes into a dormant stage for 10, 20, 30 years. And then it causes all of your organs to swell and you die. The thing that they were looking at was they go dormant and they could not find where these parasites were that had gone dormant. And so in order to have a drug that targeted them in their dormant stage before they, you know, caused any damage, you have to work out where they were. So in order to understand a bit more about how the disease progressed, this team from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine used a parasite that had been given the GFP, the green fluorescent protein gene. So absolutely minimal genetic modification, just literally adding a little gene that makes a protein. Administered these parasites to mice 
and then could use CT technology, essentially fluorescent scanning, to track the parasites through the mice's life cycle to the point, I mean, they were given a parasite that ultimately killed them, but through their lifespan, you could track where that parasite was. And that was a massive breakthrough in terms of this disease that was just killed millions of people. That breakthrough you never would have got through humans. So this was an incredible discovery, but I mean, I don't know how many mice they would have tested on, but all of them would have been killed directly as a result of a human giving them a parasite that they wouldn't have got otherwise. Exactly. To what extent do we get to decide, sorry, buddy, it's not your day? I think it's really interesting in terms of animal testing objectively has led to massive scientific progress that all of us use in our day to day lives. I agree with you. It's hard to acknowledge like ibuprofen, paracetamol, all these things came from animal testing, but can we say it was worth it? Ultimately, it's a debate of ethics. Like, does it profit a lot of a lot of humans and generations to come? But does it profit their species? If we take down that, that's going to be the one in the can. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's Pandora's box of ethical conundrums. The other thing we want to talk about a bit is what alternatives we have. So I know that your dissertation, Meg, was on alternatives to brain tissue, right? It was, yeah. So my undergrad dissertation, it was looking at specifically induced pluripotent stem cells. So stem cell is just kind of the baseline of what a cell is. It is not differentiated into any other kind of cell. There's very few stem cells found in the body. But the good news is what my dissertation was about was these induced pluripotent stem cells that instead come from basically reverse programming cells back to the state of being a stem cell to then program those into a different cell cell type such as neurological tissue. That's excellent. So the problem of like animal testing not being you know, like adequate or um, alternatives has been discussed as early as like 17th century. I feel like that's just an inertia of us not trying to test and put this um, like new alternatives into use. And we just need like a huge momentum for the entire industry, for the regulations to green light that. I'm optimistic that um, that will happen, but why is it not happening faster than we think? There is unfortunately all of the hurdles that are still not overcome yet. The same way that a rat is not a human, an organelle on a cell plate is not a human. And I think there's also something to be said for, we're saying this process has been ongoing since the 16th century, but I imagine the majority of the things that you were looking at in your dissertation, you wouldn't have had citations earlier than sort of 2015, 2016, in terms of the ones you were testing. So there's been that massive sort of, I'm thinking like your classic logarithmic graph of alternatives, we're just getting to the point where they're gonna be able to be used, but we're not there yet. Oh yeah, the the whole thing was that I was looking back at research, a lot of which had been done on mice and stuff, and basically proposing there's this new technology that is just kind of hitting the ground, it's not running yet, but it's just in the beginning phases of being able to be applied. Absolutely, so it's something really promising, but it's not gonna happen. I mean, this week, this year, probably this decade, to be honest. So are there any other alternatives that we wanted to discuss? 
so I think in other alternatives, uh, I, I'm not very confident this one, sorry, because like, I have not researched it deeply into that. It is how you can put all this data and simulation of how a human body works in a computer and use a logarithm to determine how the interaction will look like in a human body. So I'm very sketchy about this one <laughs> because it's quite sketchy to me as well. Um, but I think it might be good for a certain type of um, preclinical test, but not all types of it. Say if we're talking about um, virology or studying of a parasite or an hostile-ish organism, it might not be the best way to see how it works. But for drug, I could see that could happen in replacing a lot of animal testing by using computers to demonstrate how it might work and give us an idea of the toxicity. The problem is you're never going to know the effect of grapefruit juice on a computer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unless we put the grapefruit We will put the grapefruit the, juice and alcohol. Program in. I just think it's one of those things that's so bizarre, the idea that we can convert human bodily function into an algorithm. But the horrifying thing is it's not that unlike AI. Like, if we can put psychology into a computer, I guess putting the physiology and the metabolism in is not so far-fetched. But I think, again, it's one of those things where it's not there yet. If you were using this technology, absolutely you'd have to do studies which tried to confirm that what the algorithm said was correct because at the moment I don't think anyone would say, yeah, we have we have enough understanding of the human body to be able to program a computer to tell us exactly what's going to happen. I think it's something that sounds wonderful if we could achieve it, but I mean... I know that my dissertation was on an enzyme that we didn't really know how it worked. I mean, in a parasite, but there's so much of human physiology and human biology that we just don't understand. And we would need to be able to understand it to put it into a program, you know? So I think it's one of those things. I think that's the case with all of these. That is my headline for the alternatives, definitely. That these are incredible things that could be paradigm shifts in research, but it's not going to happen that quickly. You know, it's not going to be able to be something where we just say right that's it today no more animal testing we have these alternatives because we don't have them today but it's looking very positive for the future I think and it becomes one of these things you know we've talked about how complex this is as an ethical issue and I don't think there's anyone that can say yes once we have these alternatives in place we should still be testing animals I don't think there's anyone that would say yes let's keep doing it even when we have the alternatives but I think time I think cost these are things that we're really gonna have to work on reducing getting them to be an affordable alternative and at that point we can start transitioning in our research I agree. I like to think right now we're in this transition period where these new technologies, new new techniques are being brought into practice. And yeah, I think it will take a lot of years of trial and error really honing this new approach. But to not even try would be like such a disservice to science. I agree. I think my final verdict on this is we cannot abolish animal testing now as much as it sounds really nice. But um, what we can do is we need to keep talking about 
the alternatives and making that visible. Also, we should need to make sure the welfare of animals at the labs right now are being taken care of. Can't just be looking at themselves and forget that they are still there, quote-unquote serving our well-being. And we'll make sure we push the governments to make sure everything is being looked um, carefully inside those facilities. Yeah. Amazing. That was such a session, but thank you so much for being here. It was absolutely a pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. A big thank you to Meg and Amy for their thoughtful and considered discussion today. This was a particularly tricky topic and you handled it amazingly. I also need to say a massive thank you for putting up with the chaos that was recording this episode, featuring especially the purchase of our new That Science microphone. As always, there are all the readings and some links for further information on the topics we've covered today in the show notes below. I particularly encourage you to check out Twisted Doodles on Twitter or Instagram. Her comics are so good. I'm shocked this is the first time I've brought her up on the podcast because I'm a bit obsessed. Make sure you tune in next week for an episode of Is That Science with Susan. As always, thank you for listening.